0: Welcome to the Pokes Podcast, the official podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Elizabeth Gosney, Manager of Marketing and Communications for the college, and today I'm joined by Dr. Brandy Thomas-Wells and two of her students, Nikki Hammack and Brett Smith. This past semester, Nikki and Brett were enrolled in Dr. Well's Oklahoma history class, during which they researched women of Tulsa's Greenwood District who lived through the Tulsa Race Massacre. Well, thanks for being with us today. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Just tell us your name, where you're from, your year in school for Nikki and Brett, um, and for Dr. Wells, what's your title or role, and, and what's your expertise? So whoever wants to start.
1: Okay. I'll start. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Brandi Thomas-Wells. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History. I'm also an affiliated faculty member with Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, Africana Studies, and American Studies. I have been in Oklahoma since 2018, and I am originally from the state of Georgia.
2: I am Nikki Hammack. I am from right here in Stillwater, actually, born and raised I am an older student, (laughs) but I am a senior finally, so I'm graduating in December um, with my bachelor's degree in secondary education with an emphasis on social studies.
3: Yeah, I'm Brett Smith. I am a first year here. I'm from Oklahoma City, and I'm I'm a history major.
0: Nice. And Brett, you're also part of the Cowboy Marching Band, right? Yes. Nice. And you play?
3: I play the clarinet.
0: Nice. Very cool. I wanted to go back a few years so that, uh, Dr. Rose, we can talk about your research on Women of Black Wall Street, that project that you've been working on. So can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So when I arrived in Tulsa in 2018, there was already a lot of conversation going on about the upcoming centennial. And there was a lot of research going on, a lot of journalists in the area. But the community itself, the Greenwood community, was very active in community events and uh, preserving its history. And as a scholar of United States history, black women's history, African-American history, I thought about how can I contribute to those efforts? What can I do that would help preserve the past but also be available to the public? And so uh, in my field, usually we write books or we write articles, and those things are behind a paywall, and they're most likely um, and not often available to the public. And so I know I didn't want to go that route. And so I started to work on biographies, which is something that I truly enjoy doing. And I was going it alone for a long time. And this is actually not my primary research. I don't know if uh, Brett and Nikki know that, but I actually write on Black Women's international activism and so i was doing this work alone and i came up with the idea to create a class and invite students into the project and in 2020 i had six students in a digital history class and one of those students was also in an honors add-on with me and we wrote biographies together and so that's how the project was born out of a commitment to giving something back to the public but also preserving this incredible history So, Dr. Rose,
0: like you said, this project is being added to continually by students that you have in your classes. So can you go into a little bit more detail about how
1: students contribute? Absolutely. So when in the first iteration, which premiered at the time of the centennial, uh, in 2021, there were 10 biographies, there were maps, um, there were recipes, interviews, a lot of dynamic things that the students had worked on. So students in the classwork, and then students in the internship worked on the project afterwards. And I want to keep building Women of Black Wall Street because I think as you will hear from Nikki and Brett later, there's a lot to know, right? There's a lot that we don't know. And so in this class, in Oklahoma history, because it's not a digital history class, I assigned the students— Uh, a biography, that they had some details, not a a lot, but some, right, a narrative of uh, these women. And so they were able to take it in whatever direction I gave, some direction in terms of, you know, tell me about this person's upbringing. Where were they born? Um, What did their parents do for a living? Uh, What did they do for a living? Did they marry? Were they a community member? But outside of that, and I think Uh, It'll come out in Brett and also uh, Nikki's project. They took it different directions in terms of uh, who they decided to study that were members of that person's family and the sort of community activism that they did. And so the students were able to also make the project their own. Very cool. And...
0: Before we, I ask uh, Nikki and Brett more about the, the, they happened to both research the same woman, I found out. Yeah. But uh, before I ask about that, I wanted you, Dr. Wells, to tell us a little bit more about Eddie Faye Gates, who many people might not know who she is. And she only passed away in 2022, correct? Yeah, 2021. 2021. Okay. Mm-hmm, December. And, and she did a whole lot of work, yes. um, historical work around the Greenwood District, correct? So Absolutely. can you tell
1: us more about her? Absolutely. So Eddie Faye Gates was a marvel of a woman and a historian. I Oklahoma native who, because of segregation in Oklahoma, actually attended an HBCU in Alabama. And she married uh, maybe her junior year, and she ended up leaving school before she finished her degree. She lived abroad in uh, Europe and other places, and she took classes wherever she could. And ultimately, she finished her undergraduate degree. And she got her master's degree in history from the University of Tulsa. And so some of Miss Gates' papers are at the University of Tulsa, but they're also at the Gilcrease now. And what Eddie Faye Gates set out to do was to preserve this history. She was a high school teacher, by the way, 22 years in the classroom, and was very committed to having students do hands-on sort of research and making this history come alive. And she did that, too. So in addition to teaching, she authored three books. She did over 200 interviews with survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre, and over 300 interviews with the descendants or the family members of those who were not directly involved in the massacre. So we're talking about 500 or so interviews that this woman has done, this this scholar, this incredible educator, and this resource that she left behind for all of us. So I want to start by saying just I'm grateful for this work, and that work was the foundation for the course. So, in the previous course students just had a name, and they had to start from the from scratch. But in this course, because it's not a digital history course, we didn't learn all of those things. We started with Miss Gates' wonderful, wonderful work, and she interviewed these women and their biographies will often go in different directions they would focus on a different aspect of um, their life so in this class just for um, background for our readers there were six groups and two groups were assigned the same woman and so Nikki was a team lead for her group and Brett were you I was a uh... what role did you play
3: manager. So you were the
1: team lead. So we have two team leads here, right? And so the purpose of having them work on the same woman was so that at the end, we could corroborate their history to determine um, that it's correct. So one of the things that I'm very committed to is when we put these things, you know, online for the public to be able to read and hold on to, we want to make sure that they are historically accurate.
0: That's awesome to have, you know, Those uh, your work kind of backed up. And before we started recording, Nikki and Brett were actually kind of talking about the different their different sources and what they're doing. So let me just let's just continue that conversation. What was this the research process for? Uh, what was it like for both of you and first of all who did you research and then maybe go from there
2: gotcha well we both researched eunice cloman jackson i know because of eddie Faye gates the the information we started with we had a pretty good foundation a lot of it was pretty focused on the tulsa race massacre so we knew a lot about where she was at that moment um, for my group i know a lot of times women in history get kind of lost they get put in the shadow of their spouse or uh, in the shadow of whatever event it was, even that becomes the focus. So for me and my team, I I really was like, I think we need to focus on who she was, not just as a child and in the massacre. What did she do after? Like, how did it affect her and what did she do with it? Because of that, we launched into some significantly deep research. I managed to pull a lot of newspaper articles. Um, so our group really just started dissecting those articles and realizing She was very active in community service. Um, That was something that she focused on. And so she was the wife of Samuel Jackson, and he was the undertaker for the Greenwood District. And that was his story was Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And I, I caught myself wanting to just dive into that, too. It was just so interesting. And I think that's that was something we kind of struggled with was, okay, let's let's keep our focus on her for my group. That was what we wanted to do. Um, And we did. We found so much about how she impacted the community around her. She influenced a lot of women's rights movements of the time, and she literally stayed active as a member of all these groups until she died. And she died at 101 years old. Wow. So it was just fascinating. So how old – sorry, before we go on, how old was she – when was she born? She was born in 1903. Okay, okay. And so that's – so she died in 2004. um, And it's – she spoke – about the massacre and she interviewed and stayed very engaged in the and she stayed in tulsa she stayed in that community for her for her life so it was absolutely amazing
1: yeah
0: brett what did your research uh and your group focus on
3: uh we kind of focused on two different aspects part of the team focused on her parents and where do they come from Mm -hmm. and and then i i focused on her husband because I, I saw that and he was there was very little information in the reading that we were giving that I was like, I want to find out more about him. What was he doing? Because apparently he owned, all we found out from the reading was he owned a, yeah, owned a memorial chapel and that was all we found out. I didn't realize until I started doing my research that he did most of the mass graves and just the graves in general for post the massacre. Oh, wow. So that was really interesting to figure out. And then his parents, her, her parents are such an interesting story alone. Yeah. Especially her mother. We found <laughs> we struggled so much to find information on her because it was like she had a she had a dad. He could have died earlier than stepdad but we don't know much about her, her normal dad. It, it was a lot to figure out with yeah. not a lot of time mm. and we accidentally had, or not accidentally yeah we weren't able to get access to newspapers like, like Nikki did so it was kind of hard to figure out more on that that end of things.
1: Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. So did you enjoy the process or was it frustrating or what were some of the challenges, what were some of the surprises for both of you? Yes. (laughs) Yes to everything. (laughs) So
3: I loved it, it was challenging, but it's not my first foray. Uh, It is professionally going into primary sources and just going through files and trying to find stuff. But it it was uh, hard, rewarding, fun in a lot of ways. Because this is kind of what I want to do later in life. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yes. How about you, Nikki? Well, yeah. I have done a lot with genealogy. Um, and so I find that the things that are available on the genealogy sites are a world of its own. Mm-hmm. So, like, you do have access through ancestry.com. Part of that is newspapers, census records, um, telephone directories. Like, they have compiled a whole lot of resources that are available through their subscription. Um, and as students, we get a very discounted rate. So I was like, I'm going to take advantage of this wholeheartedly.
1: Nice.
2: Um, and because we wanted to focus on family, I began looking through family trees. A lot of times in you know genealogy, you can find big branches of the tree that have done their own research, too. And so when you start looking at that, you can compile everyone's, mm-hmm. kind of find different facts. And so we did find you know things about her father dying young. Um, and then she did have a stepfather. And that's kind of how they got brought to Tulsa. You know, they were originally in Arkansas and then they wound up in Eufaula Mm -hmm. and in that area black children can only go to school three months out of the year so her mom decided they needed more than that Um, they needed more opportunity and so she brought them to Tulsa and I think in Eddie Faygate's interview there's there's a quote I believe it's in, in that interview that that talks about how she viewed Gruden when she got off the train and so to see her direct quote like you can take yourself back to that moment and just picture as a as a 17 year old girl um you know Coming off this train, what was this like? Um, actually, I don't remember if she was 14 or 17 when she got to Tulsa. I'll just remember that one. <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. say it wrong. Pretty sure it was, it was 14. 14 when she arrived in Tulsa. So you can just imagine, like, you can put yourself back at 14 years old. What would that have looked like moving to an entirely new place that is bustling and exciting? And she mentioned that. Like, there is, wow, this is exciting. And it's, it's a different world for her. And she was given a lot of opportunity right off the bat in Greenwood. Mm-hmm. And to just have that taken away immediately with the massacre it's surprising to see that she stayed and so looking at ancestry looking at the newspaper records being able to have access to all of these forms right there at your fingertips online was mind-blowing i, it, I did not take that for granted i was like okay we live in a time and a place that we can really really deep dive into history and it was incredible It was overwhelming almost just because it's like wow this could get emotional just to see everything right here in front of me and I can put this person's life together and potentially share it with so many. Um, But I think that was the biggest thing that I got from it was, wow, like I can see where she came from, who she was and where she went afterwards, all by looking at this digital information in front of me. Yeah. So from what I understand, I'm not an
0: Oklahoma native, but um, I've been here long enough to realize that it wasn't until relatively recently that the history of the Greenwood community, including the Tulsa Race Massacre, was, has been really talked about and especially not taught in, in history classes. In Oklahoma, I never learned about it. I w- grew up in Washington State, didn't learn about it, that I remember. And so what impact have you seen or do you hope to see from your research when it comes to rectifying that? And
2: that's a question for all of you. I think it's something I have gained from this, um, I did learn about the massacre really very recently as well. I grew up here, but it was never talked about. I never learned about it until college. Um, and so taking a class with actually Dr. Now, I got a chance to go and experience the Greenwood Rising Museum um, to learn about it, to hear about it. And it was just a little taste. And then in Dr. Wells' Oklahoma history class, we were able to really deep dive and look at this. Um, and I think the thing that just kept going through my mind in reading this was how, how does this big huge monumental event Mm -hmm. get buried in history for so long Mm -hmm. what kind of effort did it take to not talk about that yeah to not put that in books to not know like how many people had to literally just be silent and why Mm -hmm. and so that like hearing this has just been again emotional and overwhelming but it's the work that Dr. Wells is doing especially with black women like Getting that out there, their stories specifically, not just not just Greenwood, but in general, it's this is opening an entirely new world. I feel like Um, as a person, it's grown me. Mm -hmm. So I am really hoping that this work continues and that more people can learn about it, understand the impact, but also take a minute and understand what it took to hide it. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. (laughs) That's that's incredibly weird to me that it could be done like that.
3: Yeah, I luckily was able to go to what I consider one of the best schools of Oklahoma, Bethany. And I was able to learn about the massacre, just not not to the extent that we did in, her, in Dr. Wells' class, but enough to understand my way through the complexities of it. And then after, you know, I get into this class, I'm like, okay, I know a little bit about it, but I want to know more. And then we read a couple of readings on it, and I went, okay, there's a lot to unpack here.
1: When I think about the impact, I want it to be multifaceted, right? So I want students to realize in the course, right, and I know you all certainly probably understand this as a future educator, sometimes history seems so complete, it it feels written already, it feels decided already. And I want students to walk away understanding that history is a process. And so Nikki spoke about like, this history being discarded, or this conspiracy of silence that existed around the massacre, and it being devalued, right? But at another, you know, point in time, then that history becomes valued. And so I want students to one, understand that history is alive, that his History is not dead, and it is not past, right? So that's the first thing. Two, I want students to see themselves as knowledge producers, canon expand, um, to to participate in canon expansion. So to help to write the history, and I think it means a lot, particularly to my students who are from Oklahoma, to be involved in writing this history and writing this wrong, right? And so that's uh, an important part of it. But then I also want to talk about the community aspect. Um, a lot of people have looked at the website from all over the world, and that means a lot to me all over the country. You know, um, high school teachers are using it. College professors are using it. But I think for me, what sort of means the most is when people from Greenwood walk up and say, oh my gosh, I'm using that. Or "Or I got another woman for you to study, right? Cool. Uh, my aunt, you know, and so they, it's something that they feel proud about. And then I'll say this sort of final thing when we think about this, and this is why this project is so important and and what I hope to rectify, when we think about Greenwood and we think about the intersections of race and gender, black women would have been the most invisible in Greenwood. So even as we pull back the sort of layers of invisibility and we talk more about Greenwood, so often um, the people who are sort of considered or seen the least are going to be black women. And so when we started the project, uh, the first 10 women were business owners, but these women were uh, educators, right? They worked in different fields. And so I want to continue to expand what we know about Greenwood so that people can see this history of the massacre, which we must see. But I, I really love the emotion that Nikki spoke with. I want you to think about and envision this bustling place, this this paradise, if you will, this haven and this place of Black enterprise and Black families and, you know, um, People just trying to make it, and so I want to make that history come alive. And to do that, you have to study multiple facets of Greenwood, and you have to really deepen that story.
0: I sure appreciate it because what your classes specifically are doing, because it puts things in context. It's not just the race massacre, which— is the most horrific thing, and it's going to, what's gonna pull your focus, of course. But who, like you've been talking about, who were those people before? Who were they after? Yes. You gotta put it in context and see what um, they continued to do and how they continued to thrive despite everything they went through. So that's just from an outsider saying, hey, that's really cool what you all are doing and the research you're doing. Well, Nikki and Brett, can you tell us a little bit more about your research
2: process? Yeah, this this project was divided. You know, like Dr. Wells had said, it was split into groups. Um, so each each group had a woman to um, research. We also had kind of a rough outline of ideas of how we could take it. Um, I think the the most fascinating part is we had a very little amount of time to do this.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I
2: believe we had two weeks that two weeks? we, two solid weeks that we worked oh, on wow. this, yeah. um, which is only four class periods mm-hmm. in, in this class. So it was really neat the way that it was designed because each team had four members, we each had a job to do. So it was really fun. It's probably, the, I told her, it was this is the most fun group project I think I've ever worked on. I don't know that anyone is excited about group projects ever, <laughs> um, but coming into this, like seeing the way it was set up, I was like, okay, we're set up for success. So each member had a role. We each pulled so much information, came together, only met a few times, but just knowing kind of the direction of this, we were able to pull so much in such a short amount of time that it, it was amazing to see what everybody came up with in the end.
3: So it was a total of six groups and two were doing, you know, each two were doing the same woman. So that's how we were both Mm -hmm. in that field. But we, my group did an all night, not an all nighter, but we needed the time by ourselves to work on it because we were not going to get it done if we didn't. And so due to scheduling conflicts, we went, all right, midnight, cool library, let's go. (laughs) And using the resources of the library of, of using one of their um, just rooms that you could just rent in and so we just kind of went down ideas, went through a ton of research that's how we found uh, the court case that I was talking with Nikki about where it was basically them suing the city after the fact Mm -hmm. and just going down a list of what happened to each of these people's homes and such Mm -hmm. and it's just good that there is that source and the resource process in general can, yeah, rabbit hole to rabbit hole Mm -hmm. some of it might not be Relevant, but you still want to go down it just in case there might be right. something. So resor- in terms of the research process, it was underst- like we knew what we were getting into, mm-hmm. but it was still hard getting there, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
1: Oh, sure. If it helps... I will tell you that the students in my digital methods course, where they learned about dat- databases the entire semester, the library came in, they did all of this. They had six weeks, and at the end, they still said, ooh, more time. And I think you can attest to, when you get to into that research, you always want more time. But I want to uh, sort of also explain the research process in terms of, this was my first time trying this with an Oklahoma history class. And I will say, I'm excited, and I think it works, and I want to do it again. So at first, I always thought, in order to build this website, I'll always have to do digital history classes. The students in this class convinced me that that is not the case. Two weeks as a professor to give up two weeks where I'm not lecturing, right? I'm not covering the 40s. I'm not covering the 30s. And the students just come in and work. I know the students feel pressed for time, but that's a lot of my class time that I don't have the ability to lecture. And so it means that we have to go faster on other things. And so, you know, they got together for those two weeks. They came in, they had a note taker. Um, I I forgot what they were called, but I think they were the recorder, the recorder. the Mm -hmm. recorder, editors that they worked with. And so I thought really sort of carefully about how can I make this project, which is a big project, by the way. This is a big undertaking work in this class, right? And so I tried my best to sort of set the students up for success, give them direction, but don't curtailed their creativity. So I let them sort of take it whatever direction that they they wanted to go. So I wanted to explain how we ended up in the Oklahoma history class. And I'll say a final thing not just about Brett and Nikki, but about others in the class. I said to the students in the first week I said, "Hey you all, I've never done that in this class before. I need you all to hang in there with me. Some things are going to go right and some things are going to go wrong and we're going to see how this went. And so I think they did a remarkable job. And they were my guinea pigs, if you will. But they were they were fantastic. Did anything surprise you with where their
0: research went? Um, anything have, and not just this class, but any of your classes, where you said you give them direction, but you don't yes. give them step by step. So have you ever been surprised where... Uh, about
1: where they found resources or even just the direction they went? So uh, Brett mentioned the court case. I thought that was a fantastic find. Nikki ended up interviewing family members and finding out that there were some people who had maybe dabbled a little bit into this, and they had some records. And so that that's surprising. And so uh, those are resources that I hadn't anticipated. Yeah. Um, that students discovered on their own. And then I think, uh, was it Brett's group that discovered the sort of familial connection to the Jackson family? Yes. You want to say a bit about so that?
3: So I was going through findagrave.com and I was trying to piece together because that was sort of our jumping off point was when they died and just piecing through that. So Samuel Malone Jackson... He had a brother, and then he just kind of... It just, you know, family trees work. It kind of gets complicated. Mm -hmm. But eventually you get to um, the Jackson 5's dad, and it was interesting to see that. And I was like, okay, well, this is here, but Find a Grave isn't really a fantastic source. So we um, split off and kind of find different sources. We were able to find a a good one that I cannot remember the name of. But Mm -hmm. it, it pieced together sort of in a weird way of about it The Michael Jackson and that whole family is this is in this group. So it kind of um, pieces together uh, one of the bigger leaders of Tulsa in terms of community Mm -hmm. with the best pop star (laughs) um, ever. So it's kind of cool to like see that connection and just how family trees work.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And kind of makes history that much more real because it's not ancient history I mean these people just recently passed and there's some that are still alive mm-hmm. today and so I think that's for me that's um, really amazing to see that um yes it's called history but um there are people around that still remember it and you're still part of it and still affecting mm, you yes. relatives and all this stuff it's really it's really cool to see
3: history is ever growing yeah mm-hmm.
0: for sure Brett and, and Nikki, can you tell us what you took away from this? What you ended up learning that you didn't know before about Greenwood, about Oklahoma?
2: Again, coming into this, I'm not really having a whole lot of knowledge of Oklahoma history or Tulsa or Greenwood, I think I was most amazed at the fact that knowing that that time period, knowing the extent of racism, knowing so many different groups of people existed here in Oklahoma, living here. You've got indigenous people. You've got African Americans, you've got Spanish Americans, you've got all these different people here, like Mexican Americans, Hispanics, Asians even. Like we had so many different people groups here. Kind of a melting pot in itself. So you've got, to me, Little America is Oklahoma. So I'm like, oh, look at all these different things that it represents. Knowing that and then looking at Greenwood and seeing, again, a very successful thriving place, it kind of like, it broke my heart a little bit knowing that it was like, that we had to have it separate. I, I didn't, that idea of oh wow, like this is an only black community because they can't be part of a white community, Like, wow, I, I hate seeing that. I've heard many, many times people had talked about, and that this got debunked in this class, I, I'd heard a lot of people talk about how Greenwood was just so rich. Everyone was so rich, had their own businesses and these big houses and mansions. Looking at the census records during this research project, looking at these people's stories, they were not all rich. It was not all business owners. There were many of them living in one home or an apartment just trying to survive and they were in a in a community um, but there were also poor white people there as well. It was not just oh we're very cookie cutter, this is what this is' it's not it's not black and white. it's just not. There's a lot of pieces of that And then knowing about you know the oil field and just and seeing all the different social classes, the different moral aspects and religious aspects that all just meshed in this place was mind-blowing because again looking at like psychology sociology aspect, I'm like, wow. You have a whole bunch of different people from different backgrounds in one area with different beliefs, and they all met in this one event. And now you see kind of the explosion of that and what happened from that point on. That was very impactful.
1: I think when we started the class, um, I tried to convince the students, uh, one, to have enthusiasm for Oklahoma history. Yeah. I don't know if I made it. For some, I made it. Right. Um, and I asked them to start. What is your how would you describe Oklahoma? And some students said, oh, you know, flyover state. stay, you know, nothing happens here. And I argue that, you know, Oklahoma history is a really, really rich history. It's complex. It's diverse. It's just often not the way we teach it, right so we teach it in sort of mundane and dry ways, but I think Nikki and Brett and others in the class would say, actually, Oklahoma history is incredibly sort of wild and crazy and interesting, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Very right interesting. yeah,
3: I mean the little I knew I was arguing that to my friends, even just from a geography standpoint of there's more to Oklahoma than just flat plains and two cities, yeah. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tornado Alley, right? Tornado yeah. Alley. Yes. yes, Tornado Alley. We have a little yeah. little Sahara. Yeah. yeah.
3: Just any biome you can think yeah. of is here.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, my family, I told Dr. Wells, is my family homesteaded here, oh, yeah. right here in Stillwater, actually. Um, and my great-grandfather was a mayor here in Stillwater, Christian Holzer, and he died in 1924. But knowing what I know now hearing the things about Greenwood, knowing what was happening in Oklahoma in that time, like I would give anything to go back and know what they experienced Mm -hmm. and what they were doing and how they made it because we we didn't leave Stillwater. Um, So again, like how how did that affect them? Did they hear about it? Did they know? Like what did they do with that information? Like it's mind-blowing because I know my family came from Switzerland to Ohio and then from Ohio to the – they did the land run. They were part of that experience and – Settled here in Stillwater, so yeah. I'm like, wow. Now I would love <laughs> to take what I've learned here, and now go back and deep dive into my own family history yeah. and see kind of how that impacts and it, it changes. It changes me as a person, and I'm obviously an educator here in the state of Oklahoma, I will teach here, and that's all of this is going into what yeah. I will teach. So, yeah,
0: makes the case for keeping a journal, right? <laughs> I do journal. Oh, I, do. <laughs> I and it is because of that because there's no
2: like my family didn't really, and I'm like, man, I have very limited pieces. And so, again, I think that's what another thing that made this biography process so fascinating is to see what records do exist. What did they keep? What did they have? And did it get passed down to family members? And are they still using it to share their story? Can we keep their legacy alive? This project does that. And I love that.
1: I'm trying to remember if it was, uh, Brett, your paper or it may have been another paper in the class where did uh, Miss Jackson keep her green card from the event and it was lost in the move? Was that you or another was, student? I don't think. Okay, so that may have been another uh, student, but that would be an interesting biography for the viewers to go and check out when um, these are put on the website. But there's going to be one of these women who's going to hold on to her green card. The green card is what they are assigned as a sort of voucher. It vouches for them. They've been cleared of any sort of wrongdoing, and they have to wear this. And if it sounds ironic that Americans are assigned a green card, mm-hmm. then it is ironic, right? And so one of the groups in the class discovered that this woman had kept this green card for years, but in moving to another home, it was lost over time. And so just sort of thinking about Nikki's point about what is sort of retained and available and then what is sort of lost. Yeah, and how many times have you thought, oh, I'll remember that. Like, that's my own life, I'll remember that. Yeah. And even you
0: forget, let you know. Let alone what you've passed on and what the your kids or grandkids would remember
2: because it just... Um, kind of depletes and depletes, so. Yeah. Something interesting, to, to piggyback off that, You know, Eunice Jackson did not have any, she did not have any living children of her own.
0: Mm.
2: She did have a son in 1925 who died at 1928, so he was only three years old when he passed, and she never had any more children of her own. So knowing that, that impacted this, too. it was like, wow, her own, her interviews with Eddie Faye Gates may be the very last thing we have of her story. Wow. So to have those records, those are crucial. Like that's that is what continues her story, and being able to write these things, she did not have like her own child. She had. Uh, I tried to reach out to a nephew, of hers, but it was I, I. didn't get a response back. But it's like that's that is really interesting to know. Is yeah. if there are no other people living, how does their story continue?
3: Mm-hmm. That is interesting that you found that she didn't have any other like surviving children. Because mm-hmm. I think I found well, not surviving. But when they moved the Jackson Memorial Chapel mm-hmm. to somewhere else, there was a name that who helped her move because this was a year after yes. her husband died. Mm-hmm. And I think I was going I was going through and I think that was one of her children. Yeah. I so my, Samuel thought, I wrong?
2: Samuel had three, yeah, of children that were not Eunices. okay. Um and, and again, the chapel exists today, and it is Samuel's grandson yeah. that runs it. Um, okay. that's, yeah,
3: so technically, she didn't have any children, but there were still step children. Okay.
2: Possibly, yeah. and I, okay. they weren't. I never was able to substantiate yeah. if Samuel raised them. Yeah. I know one was raised by his grandparents. That was Maurice. He's the one that took over. Yeah, I was able the to the find chapel. Maurice, but mm-hmm. no
3: one else really. Yeah, there that. were two others,
2: um, and I I did not find any information to yeah. find out if they were part of their lives or not. I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, because it's hard with census records because once they become like an adult, they're gone you yes. can't find them in the census record for them mm-hmm. yeah. as as any independent so it's just like mm-hmm. oh i were they there at one point i don't know yep. and i think at some point they were like maybe this was a rabbit hole that we didn't use but mm-hmm. they were housing a couple people in the 19 mm-hmm. like 30 census or something Oh, yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. yeah. So that was they really sure interesting did. to figure yeah. out yeah that yeah. i didn't yeah. put in the
1: paper but yeah
0: well With this project, Dr. Wells, what's next for this project? And what's next for you just in research in general? What else are you working on?
1: Absolutely. So listeners will be able to read these biographies in just a little while online. So I'm going to do a little bit of uh, editing work to get them ready to go online. And the students have to sort of, um, they have to uh, give me permissions to publish this this online, but they will have a publication on their resume. So I'm really excited about that. And so three new biographies. And the next time I teach Oklahoma history, we will continue to add to this. I will tell you um, one of the things I look forward to, this was a suggestion that came from students. I don't know how to do this. We'll see. But they want to create a sort of virtual reality component of Women of Black Wall Street, where you sort of like walk down the street and go to the grocery store and you go to the hairdresser and you go... That may be a future iteration, right? So I didn't come up with that. Students came up with that. I'd love to see that. And so I hope that um, listeners will keep going back to the website to try um, or to see new things, right? So biographies will be added um, every year, every time I teach Oklahoma history or a digital history course. Wow. That's amazing. And what's next
0: for
2: you, Nikki? For me, I will be graduating December um, and will be hopefully launching myself into classrooms and I think taking everything that I have learned here at OSU and just life in general, um, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to take this kind of project to my students and help them to make history relatable. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing in learning it and making it relevant and making it like something they retain is making it relevant. They need to be able to see, oh, hey, I can relate to this person. I've been 14. I've been to a new place. So if they can start seeing that these people were people with lives just like theirs, it really helps them to start putting it together and understanding history yeah. and respecting it. And so I'm, I'm excited to be able to teach it. Obviously, I have a ton of passion for this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm excited to get to use what I've learned in my classrooms. Yeah. And Brett, you have
0: a little bit more time yeah. left to school, but what's, what's, on, um, what's in your plans?
3: So one of the things is taking what I know now and doing my own family's history, specifically my mom, my grandma's side. She had apparently, and I didn't know this until we went to a family reunion, Family, a family member who came down to Chickasaw, they're originally from Kansas City. A lot of them are still around that area, but one came down to Chickasaw for coal mining hmm. during the uh, coal mining strikes that were happening at the time. So I'm like, okay, that's my nugget of Oklahoma history for my family to take. Very cool. Um, and I think I want to use that next in a larger research project something else i want to do which again thank you for letting us do this is my high school we know very little about my high school other than there was a fire and apparently there was a tornado in the 20s or 40s -hmm. that was it Mm -hmm. so i just i want to take like primary sources or recordings from people who were just in the school for a long time or even who are new and just what their experiences are with that
0: it sounds like you've really inspired
1: <laughs> these students I'm to keep happy going. To hear that. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. This has been an amazing class. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy they enrolled in the class, and I think we had a good time. Yeah.
0: Sounds like it. Definitely. I want to take the class now. <laughs> it's <amazing. laughs> yeah, it's Classic. great. that's cool. That's it for this episode of the Pokes Podcast. We want to thank Dr. Brandi Thomas Wells, Nikki Hammock, and Brett Smith for joining us today. To learn more about Dr. Wells' Women of Black Wall Street project, visit blackwallstreetwomen.com. To keep up to date with all things College of Arts and Sciences, follow us on social media at OKStateCAS. Thanks for listening.